Hi all, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 20 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. So episode 20 today is going to be on completion. Completion is one of those things in construction that we like to make overly complicated. It's something that there are several different ways to achieve on a construction project, certainly for different sections of work anyway, and that there is an abundance of case law about. And I suppose you might ask, how can something as simple as I finish the work be the subject of much debate, require several different terms under a contract, and have so much case law about it? Well, part of that starts with the absolute lack of definition in any of the main contracts. If you go to the JCT main contract, there is no actual definition. So the practical completion clause in that instance says, when practical completion of the works or a section is achieved and the contractor has complied sufficiently with clauses 2.37 and 3.16 in respect of the supply of documents and information, then it basically said a practical completion statement will be issued. But really, what good is that? If you go into the NEC suite of contracts, you do have a little bit more useful statement. But rather than calling it practical completion, it calls it completion. And it says something to the effect of, when all of the work that the scope states is to achieve completion by the completion date has achieved completion, including correcting any notified defects. There is also a statement on defects, which says simply, work that is not in accordance with the work's information or the scope. But annoyingly, you've still got then a potential argument about whose opinion is it that is correct over what is completion? Has something achieved completion? If you thought you could look to an architect for a definition, think again. The REBA plan of works defines practical completion as the point in the process when the construction work is certified as practically complete under the building contract. Typically helpful from an architect. Not only can he not draw buildings that work, he can't define when they're finished. In fact, arguments about completion are so commonplace that my old mentor used to have a saying that there's only one point in a project where you truly know where you are, and that is before you've even started. At least then we can all be on the same page, and we can all readily agree that nothing has happened. Practical completion is a bit of a turning point in a project. It signifies the end of most of the work. It triggers the release of the first portion of retention. Quite often it's a trigger for the final account. And probably the most important point is once practical completion has been certified, a contractor or subcontractor is no longer liable for liquidated and ascertained damages. It's also the point at which the client or the employer has to start insuring the works rather than the contractor, and the point at which the defects liability period or rectification period starts. So because of those points, a contractor and subcontractors are pretty keen for practical completion to be awarded sooner rather than later. But on the flip side to that, you've got the employer who most likely all they really want is a finished building with all the major systems working and to be free from obvious defects. But there are no hard and fast rules with this. And practical completion is something that's probably easier to recognize and see than it is to nail down in a definition. And that's probably in part why the NEC condition, in spite of its definitive statement, only refers to another document to confirm what is complete. Because if you think about it, building contracts cater to all manner of different projects. You've got houses, you've got schools, factories, public realm work, lecture halls, ice rinks, building a wall down the side of a motorway building the motorway. So is it right 
that one definition should be dreamt up and how can you apply that across the board in all of these different situations because of the need for the contract to be a sort of one size fits all pick it up off the shelf and use it kind of document this is perhaps an area where the smarter thing to do is to leave it undefined but then is that to say that it should stay undefined for each individual contract i would say not and i would say that the architect or the project manager or contract administrator should be asked to define what practical completion should mean for the particular project that they're procuring right at the start and that definition should be included as one of the articles of agreement or the contract particulars and that's in part what the NEC documents try to do by referring you back to another document because this puts the onus down to the person drafting the contract to define what they need to have achieved to consider the work complete and in your case that will be down to the contractor to put a statement together and tell you what they need from you before they can consider the job complete doesn't that sound like a good place to be i'd love to see that happen some of the bits that we need to mention alongside practical completion are partial possession sectional completion and use or early use before practical completion has been achieved so we'll start with sectional completion and in effect this is something that is predefined within your contract which breaks down a larger scheme into component parts. There's no hard and fast rules as to what these parts have to be. It could be that a client wants to take a cluster of buildings one at a time. It could be that the client wants to take one floor of a building before any of the others. This is something to watch out for when you're looking at your subcontract. Typically, each section will have its own set of completion dates and liquidated damages. And sectional completion is something as I said, it's set out from the start and something that you work towards so that you achieve practical completion of each of those sections, triggering all the same benefits as practical completion does for the whole of the project. Partial possession is slightly different. This is an arrangement where the employer can take a portion of the job regardless of how large or which section of the work it fits under. It's something that the contractor isn't obliged to offer or even allow, but it is something that is widely used, particularly if you're working in a housing forum. Partial possession may be granted for individual plots within a wider development, along with sections of road that lead up to them. There's many reasons why the contractor might not want to operate partial possession, if that was to incur additional costs, or it might make access to various parts of the site more difficult and therefore it might also disrupt the work. Those are good genuine reasons why the contractor might keep bits of the site which are otherwise complete. But noting if he hasn't got an objection then permission shouldn't be withheld unreasonably. That mechanism isn't without its faults but hopefully it can be managed. There are occasions where the occupier of a section might delay the contractor and delay the subcontractors, which then gives rise to an extension of time and perhaps loss and expense. So it's something for you to watch out for as a potential delaying factor. When partial possession is granted, the section that it applies to is deemed practically complete. And again, that comes with all of the same benefits of half retention release, the defects liability period starting, insurance of the works, passing to the client and so on. There are occasions when the client wishes to use a bit of a building or part of the site before completion has happened and that might be to store materials that they want to fix in the building later but the site's not ready yet. They might have some fit out works to do and start doing that before the site is otherwise ready for occupation and that's where this would come into play. It's more common than you think but again this is something that the contractor isn't obliged to do and it's only really when the disruption to the site will be quite minimal and the inconvenience to the contractor and the other 
the trades on site are pretty small. Otherwise, it is something that, again, would give rise to an extension of time, another loss in expense and so on. Now, that differs from partial possession because this doesn't come with the same benefits of the retention being due, the insurance passing over. And in fact, if the client starts storing something significant on site, there's arguably a reason to go back to the insurers and say, is there any premium attached to having this stuff on site? Say the client's storing an MRI machine, something particularly valuable that wouldn't be typically covered by the insurance policy that the contractor's got in place. And should anything go wrong with it, you know what insurers are like. So back to practical completion then. What can you do and what do you need to know? Well, in spite of there not being any hard and fast rules, there are some general acceptances that once a building is ready for occupation and somebody can have the beneficial use of that building, then practical completion could occur. So that means that, say in the case of a house, it's got all of its services on, it's got its carpets down, it's watertight, it's safe, you can access it, there's no holes in the walls or the windows, there might be the odd blemish here and there, what are termed de minimi by some people in the trade, but essentially these are small defects that wouldn't have an undue effect on somebody's enjoyment of the building. So we're saying no to big patches, but you might get away with small blemishes here and there that you only really notice when you get really close to a wall. So that means that whilst there might be small defects present, practical completion can occur and the occupier of whatever building can move in and start enjoying their new building. That is not to say, however, that just because somebody's moved in and they're able to live there or they're able to use the building for its intended purposes, that practical completion has occurred. They could be occupying the building, but there still be significant problems with the heating system or any one of the other systems in the building. There could, of course, be a section of the building that's not fully complete yet. And in some instances, there may be such a thing as a defect that can't be remedied. And in spite of that being a defect, not meeting the spec for whatever reason, if it genuinely is unable to be corrected to be remedied, then practical completion can still occur in spite of that, albeit presumably some kind of abatement or set-off or some negative variation might be introduced to correct for the perceived reduction in value that the client has got as a fair compromise. Now what does the subcontract have to say about this? So under practical completeness and lateness, clause 2.20.1 says as follows. The subcontractor shall notify the contractor of the date when, in his opinion, the subcontract works as a whole or such works in a section are practically complete and he has complied sufficiently with clauses 2.24 and 3.20.3 in respect of documents and information relating to that completed work. Unless the contractor descends by giving notice, giving reasons, within 14 days of receipt of the subcontractor's notice, practical completion of such work shall be deemed for all purposes of the subcontract to have taken place on the date so notified. So what this is basically saying is that you need to notify the contractor when you finish the work. And you can do that for the work as a whole, or you can do that for the individual sections that you're working on. And this is wording taken from the JCT 2016 design and build subcontract. There isn't actually a partial possession option. So unless there is a particular section defined in your subcontract, you're only doing this once at the final completion of all of your subcontract work. And essentially then what happens is the contractor can inspect what you've done. He can give you a positive notice to say, yes, you've finished. Here's your notice of completion. Or he can dissent, i.e. give you a negative notice and say, no, you haven't finished, 
but he must identify the reasons why you haven't finished, of course, in his opinion. That needs to happen within 14 days of you issuing your notice. If there's no response within those 14 days, then your original notice is taken to be correct. Quite often notices are served on the day that practical completion has happened, but it can also be done retrospectively. So if you've had a walk around with your contractor on the Monday, you've noticed that by the Friday, the contractor said they would issue you a completion notice and they haven't, what you can do is write to the contractor and say, as of whatever date the Monday was, that is the practical completion date for the subcontract work. Now in typical JCT fashion, we had to refer to two other clauses within that one clause. And just to explain what those are about, because I've picked on the design and build subcontract in this instance, clause 2.24 is the clause for issuing subcontract design, and in particular, the as-built drawings of what you've installed. Within this clause, this also refers to 3.20.3, which is the clause about providing all of your health and safety and operation and maintenance information required by the CDM regulations. So this is expressly stating that completion cannot happen without all of your as-built information and your health and safety file information. So this is all of your certification to say that products have been suitably tested and commissioned and they're working along with all of your product data for what you've installed, all of your instructions for use need to be provided. Some contracts call for things such as video demonstrations or in-person familiarization to be provided and sometimes that then gets recorded and turned into that video presentation for future users. It shouldn't come to you as a surprise if you're being asked for this because it should be expressed to you as part of the tender documents or as part of the employer's requirements that are cascaded through to your subcontract. But be aware that it is a stated requirement, it's in black and white, you can't wriggle out of it and this isn't the contractor saying, well I can't release your attention on some nonsense technicality. The same responsibilities pass upstream and they have all of that information and more from countless other trades to provide to the employer. Okay, so going back to the written clause then, we identified that the contractor can dissent by giving notice with their reasons that practical completion hasn't happened. Then the following clause tells you what happens if that's the case. So then the contractor, once he is reasonably satisfied that the work is complete, and again, that will include those documents that we've mentioned, then the contractor will then notify a date to record the completion of either the whole contract or a relevant section of work. And there's also a statement to say that section cannot be greater or later than the practical completion date for the main contract for either the whole of the works or for the same section. So it's a little pin back to the contractor to make sure that they can't engineer a situation where you're in delay excessively or beyond the dates of the main contract. I would also argue in this situation that there's another option that you write to the contractor again and say further to our notice issued on whatever the previous date was, we're writing to confirm that we've now completed the outstanding works identified in your response to that notice and we now deem that the works are complete. Then what we're doing is we're taking back control of that situation to say that if the contractor doesn't then issue a notice to confirm completion, that you've put your marker in the sand. And assuming he then doesn't come back with a further issue or identified something that you'd not quite done, then 14 days later, the work is officially complete. So that is the official party line. But I would question whether that is good enough because a lot of the time, 
you can be working on sections of the site and handing them back periodically to the contractor and that's your work finished. And in spite of it not being an official section within your subcontract, it's likely in your interest to record that your work is finished in each of those instances. Some examples of that, sections of external works that get handed over to a contractor, they're complete. If the contractor doesn't snag them at the time, you might be then on the hook for, unfairly I'll add, some bits of remedial works caused by others. And then there's always a bit of an argument of, oh, well, you had some anyway. But if you know you've left it in perfect condition and you can record it as such, then why wouldn't you? You might also have work split down into plots. So on a typical housing site, I don't know, 120 plots on a scheme. Each of those is being either sold or offered to a client and the client's accepting either single plots or small batches of them at a time and the contractor is accepting partial possession of that. So in that scenario, you ought to think about negotiating retention release on a per plot basis or certainly recording completion on a per plot basis. And the more often that you can do this, the more you're reducing your risk of things such as damages or any loss and expense that the contractor might incur. But what you're also doing is drawing a line in the sand and saying, my work was finished on this date, you've snagged it, you're happy with it. And then that's a record that if you do have to go back to a particular place, a plot, an area within the larger building, then you can quite clearly say, I was done previously, this damage is due to somebody else. And it just adds some solidity to your entitlement if you do have to go back and repaint something or change a curb or whatever else it is. And this goes back to the good old quantity surveyor's favourite, records. Get as many as you can, you don't know whether you're going to need them or not. But the one thing you can't do is get them afterwards. Okay, I hope you found that useful. My mission with this podcast is to help the million subcontractors that are the backbone of the construction industry. If you've taken some value away from today's show, I'd love it if you'd share the show and pass that value on to somebody else who would benefit from hearing it. And thanks for tuning in. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews and more, and it's less than the price of your cup of coffee per day. You can cancel any time. We're also on all your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin, and you've been awesome.